raised in, or is it your, is it your biology, is it your genetics? Which one determines your behavior more? And really what science has determined is that both work together. I have a, a bachelor's degree in psychology. So years and years ago, as I was studying in school, working on my bachelor's in, in psychology, this was the question that it seemed to get chased all throughout the discipline of psychology, especially, right? And at the end of the day, this much we can say, this much we can say for sure, that every one of us is influenced by things that we don't control. Things that we, that we did, you didn't get to control who raised you. When you were born as an infant, you didn't get to choose what family you were born into. You didn't get to choose the type of household environment that you were born into. You also didn't get to choose your biology, right? You didn't get to line up and say, well, I want, I want this, this parent and this parent. I want this dad, this mom. Those things were things that you, you just sort of, you, you inherited, if I'm going to use that word in that way. But what we see in this particular passage is that in the same way that we inherit uh, th- those things, those biological things, those environmental factors, the reality is that sometimes we learn the bad as well as the good. Sometimes we learn the negative things. Sometimes we end up walking in certain paths of sin because we've learned those things from those who came before us. But Ezekiel deals with that in this particular text to talk about the fact that each one of us will be responsible before God for what we have done and not what those who have gone before us have done. And, and we'll make more sense of that as we dig in to the text. Like when I look at my children, our four kids, I see uh, all the good things that they got from their mother, and I see all of the bad things that I passed on to them, right? I mean, that just seems to be the way that it, that it works. But uh, praise the Lord that, uh, that there's hope for my kids because of Jesus, and they're not just, you know, they're not just set up to fail because of all of dad's issues and, and my mess that I passed on to them. But in Ezekiel 18, what we'll see ultimately is that we're each one of us responsible for what we do before God. And so as we dig into this text this morning, there are three main movements in the passage that I want us to see, okay? We're going to read the text in a series of these three movements. So first, the first 20 verses, we're going to read Ezekiel 18 verses 1 through 20. And the main theme there that I want us to see is this theme of responsibility, this theme of responsibility, that we're each accountable to God for our sin. Now, you were born into sin. The Bible teaches that. There's, sometimes we refer to that as original sin. You'll hear, that, you'll hear that phrase used, original sin. It's the idea that each one of us is born into a fallen world, and we're born, we're born fallen. We're born with a sin nature, every one of us, born with that inherited guilt, but also with the, the, the sin nature that's going to lead us to sin because we're sinners. And this side of heaven, we've inherited that. But there's hope even in the midst of that because of Jesus for every one of us. But at the end of the day, you're not, you're not responsible ultimately for what everyone else around you has done. You're not accountable to God for what everyone else around you has done. Ezekiel makes it clear, as God is speaking here through the prophet Ezekiel, that we will each be accountable to God for what we've done. Let's read together Ezekiel chapter 18, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Let's explain that for a moment. So there was a proverb, there was a proverb in Ezekiel's day. And the proverb was just what was quoted here. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the point of that proverb is essentially to teach that 
that because of what fathers have done, children are affected. That a father makes a decision and that his family feel the consequences of that decision. Now, there's truth in that, isn't there? Every parent in the room knows that there's truth to this idea that the choices that we make affect our children. It affects those who come after us. In fact, I remember probably the, the heaviest weight that I had to learn to carry as a parent, as a new parent, when our oldest, when Pike was born 20 years ago, I had to learn to live with that weight that if I twist off and do something really ridiculous, that my son will suffer because of my choices, or at least he could suffer because of my, that, that I need to be very conscious of the choices that I make, conscious of the things that I do, conscious of the potential for consequence for the decisions that I make, knowing that I'm shaping his future in a lot of senses. Now, praise God, the Lord can work even through our mistakes, and I can look back at the last 20 years and point to plenty of them, and, and God works even in spite of that, but the, the principle is still the same, right? And yet, by speaking to Ezekiel in this way, what God is saying is, why do you keep repeating this? Now, he's not just dealing about, he's not just speaking about this in the sense of, like when I make a bad decision, and he's talking about this in, a, in a, what we might think of a more, a more ultimate sense. And what he's gonna go on to say is that your children are not being punished because of the sin, just the sins of future or of previous generations, rather, your children are being punished because of their own sin. Because the, again, speaking to Ezekiel, who's been carried off into captivity in a, in a distant land. He's in the land of Babylon, having been carried off there as a slave from his homeland of Jerusalem. And so as a slave, as a, as a captured uh, prisoner of war, in a manner of speaking, Ezekiel is... Is, is hearing from God, and God is saying to them, Ezekiel, you aren't experiencing all of this because of what your fathers, your forefathers have done. You're experiencing this because of your own sin as well. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right... If he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to idols, the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Again, let's pause long enough to unpack some of this. What God is saying is that if a man walks in righteousness, then he is righteous. That if a man, and, and then he gives this long list of examples, and we're not going to spend a lot of time breaking those down. We could and, and, and offer, I suppose, a lengthy discourse, a lengthy discussion on each of these. But the, the point really is the same when we just understand that that these are all particular signs of righteous behavior. So what God is saying, if a man does what is right, and then he lists off several examples, if a man does what is right, if he lives in a way that is honorable, then he's righteous and he shall surely live. But here's the problem that 
Ezekiel will have to contend with, as well as everyone else in his day, and truly every one of us today. The problem is, we have to ask the question, then who is righteous? See, if you read this and you think, okay, good, if someone is righteous, then, then they shall surely live. And if you immediately jump to the conclusion, well, I'm righteous, then you miss the point. Because the point that God is making in dealing with all of this before Ezekiel is so that Ezekiel might understand, so that we might understand that by God's perfect standard, and that is the standard, perfection, by God's perfect standard, none of us are righteous. None of us are good in that ultimate sense. So let's keep reading. Verse 10. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things. So if the son does all of the sins that the father never committed, that's the point. Who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit. He, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Each of us is responsible before God. Each of us is accountable to God for our sin. Verse 14, now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. This is a third generation person now, right? The grandson of the original uh, figure in this example. The son of the man who did wrong. Verse 15, he does not eat upon the mountain or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor does he defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, holds his hand from iniquity, takes no inheritance or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statues. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. And then verse 19, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. Verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So, ultimately, each of us is accountable to God for what we have done. We're not, we're not accountable to God for, you're not accountable to God for your, your, your father's sin, your mother's sin, your parents' sin. You're not accountable to God because of someone else's sin, your Sunday school teacher's sin, your pastor's sin, your, your uh, right, go on and on, your mentor. Your, you're accountable to God, each one of us, for our own sin, which then ought to cause us to ask the question, Am I the righteous or the unrighteous? In this supposed example, right, in this scenario that is being created here, would I be considered as a righteous person or an unrighteous person? And the reality that we each have to face is that before an almighty, a holy, a just, a perfect God, every one of us 
is unrighteous. The book of Romans makes that abundantly clear. For the sake of time today, we won't spend a lot of time studying in the book of Romans, but you could go to the book of Romans, and I would, appoint, I would point you especially to the book of Romans chapter 5. Uh, you can walk the Roman road if you know that. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Romans 5, 8, Romans 6, 23, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Th- those are all great verses. So the book of Romans really does a good job unpacking that truth. I preached through the book of Romans a few years ago. You can find that on our, on our website, the archive of all of that, if, you, if you're interested in listening t- to me explain that in, in greater detail. But let's understand it this way that according to God's righteous standard, we all fall short, which means then that every one of us is accountable to God for our sin. The question here that's raised, verse 19, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father when the son has done what is just and right, has been careful to observe all my statute? He shall surely live. The, 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 The point that's being raised actually harkens back to some, a, a part of the law. See, in the law, there are a couple of passages that, at least on the surface, almost appear to be contradictory. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, where the Lord is giving the law to Moses. So Exodus chapter 20, if you're familiar with that passage, the first, the first few verses of Exodus chapter 20 give us what we refer to as the Ten Commandments. And so as the Lord is giving to Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he says to Moses that you shall be, sheref- you shall be careful not to walk in idolatry, not to do these, these idolatrous things. And then he says in verse 5, for I'm a just God visiting iniquity onto the sons to the third and even the fourth generation of him who hates me. And so at first glance, we read that and we would think, well, does that mean then that God punishes children for the sins of the fathers? But there's a key phrase in that verse that we have to understand. It's the phrase, for him who hates me, for him who hates me. In other words, what the Lord is saying in the law is that for the one who, for the one who hates me, for the one who does not submit himself to my law, God is saying, for the one who does not respond to my righteous law, my perfect standard, the one who hates me, not only will he bear the consequence, but that decision will then affect those who come after him. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16 is the other verse that I would point to in the law that, like I said, it, it seems to contradict. I don't think it really does, but at least on the surface level, because in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, what we read is that no son will be guilty for the sins of his father, that we will, each one of us, be, would be put to death for our own sin, meaning that we're ultimately responsible for God for our own sin. Now, we can reconcile all of those verses together. We can reconcile that even with this passage in Ezekiel 18 to understand it this way. That if each of us were to stand before God, and let's be clear, someday we will. Every one of us will stand before God in judgment. And we were to stand before, each of us could stand somehow or or, or see into the future when we stand before God in judgment. And if we were to claim righteousness before God, we would find each one of us that we are guilty because of our sin. Because according to the standard set by the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 20, according to the standard that is set in Ezekiel chapter 18, according to the standard pointed to in the book of Romans, we see that we are, each one of us, guilty before God because of our sin. The Bible makes this clear, page after page. And so 
the theme here, I said, of these verses is responsibility, is understanding that we are each accountable to God for our sin. So the question that this begs each of us to ask is, have you sinned? Have I sinned? The reality for me is I can easily say, yes, I've sinned. And I know it to be true of you that you have sinned as well. Each one of us has sinned. Each one of us has committed wrong. Now, some of us might say, well, yeah, I mean, I've sinned, but I mean, I've I've done a lot more good than I have bad, so to speak. The cosmic scales, right? If, If we use that kind of that classic argument. But the problem isn't that we're measured on the standard of our goodness versus our evil. The problem is that we're, we're weighed, we are measured, we're judged, each of us, on a standard of righteous perfection against which we each fall short. We each come short. In fact, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that even if you were guilty of committing one violation of the law, then you stand condemned by the whole law. If you had lived a life and all you had ever done is committed one sin, one infraction, one wrong against God, you had lived otherwise a perfect life, you would still be guilty and condemned because of that one sin. So the problem is that we're all sinners. We all stand condemned. We're all to be held accountable before God. That's the bad news, isn't it? I mean, it's really, that's, that's bad news of our responsibility. Well, there's good news too. Hold on to that. There's, there's good news. So the next theme, I told you there are three movements here, okay? The next movement is the movement of repentance. So we've seen this first movement, this opening explanation, this opening uh, instruction about our responsibility before God. Now we see instruction about repentance. Verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed. For them he shall die. Again, remember, this is pointing us to repentance, verse 26. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he's considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Again, the the record of, of, of what's being pointed to here is our record of wrong. Now, we've already established that every one of us fits into the category of the unjust. None of us should read this and, and consider ourselves just before God because we're not. We're unjust. We're, we, we have all sinned. We've, each one of us rebelled. We've, we've committed sin before God. 
And so we are the unrighteous. And the key here that I really want you to see is what, is what God asks in this, this, this question, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? See, God desires that we should turn from sin and live. That's the point that I want you to see as we consider this call to repentance in Ezekiel 18. God's desire is that we should turn from our sin and live, and yet, as soon as we begin down that path of thinking, it brings us back to the question, but, but what about my unrighteousness? If I were to turn from sin, am I not still unrighteous because of the things that I've done? How can I become righteous when I'm unrighteous? What we need, what this is all pointing to, is we need a fresh start. We need ultimate forgiveness. We need, as it were, a new heart. And that's exactly what he points to in the remaining verses, is the new life that comes as we turn to the Lord on his terms, according to his plan, that we may find forgiveness, that we may find righteousness and freedom and forgiveness in the plan of God. And so this final movement, again, if you want to call it a movement, is the, the, the movement toward redemption. Redemption. Redemption is where we find ourselves forgiven for all of our past. It's where we find the record of our past wrongs set, set free, wiped clean because of what the Lord has done for us on our behalf, that we receive an inherited righteousness. We receive, there we're back to the theme of inheritance that we begin with, right? We receive an inherited righteousness that's not our own, but rather through faith in Jesus, we receive what we could never earn for ourselves. That's the point. Let's keep reading. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Here we find this call from God. Turn and live. Turn to me. Turn your hearts to me. Turn your lives to me. Turn to me for a new heart, a clean heart, the Lord declares. Later on in the book of Ezekiel, that's exactly what the Lord promises. In fact, thumb over to Ezekiel chapter 36. Keep your, keep your hand there in Ezekiel chapter 18. But go to Ezekiel chapter 36 and look at verse 26. In Ezekiel 36, 26. Next Sunday, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Ezekiel 37. And just before that passage that we study, we find these words. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26. God declares, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all uncleanness. See, the Lord is pointing to a future work. I will do these things, God is saying. If you trust in me, if you turn to me, and we know that ultimately the Lord accomplishes this word, this promise that he's speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. 
through the work of Jesus, that Jesus is the way that the Lord accomplished. The way that we find this ultimate forgiveness, the way that we find this freedom, this redemption that the Lord promises here, that we choose life instead of death, that we turn and live is by receiving this new heart of flesh that the Lord gives us when we come to him in faith. In fact, no sooner do we read those words in Ezekiel 36 than I'm reminded of what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You, you may know well, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. How is it that we become a new creation? How is it that we receive this new heart? How is it that we're made new, as it were? It's through faith in Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The way that we, that we live out and receive this redemptive promise is through placing our faith and our trust in Jesus. Now, in Ezekiel's day, to be clear, it's, it's a, a promise of, of a future thing. It's Ezekiel believes this by faith, and he calls others to believe this by faith, looking toward the future work of Jesus, the anticipation of the future Messiah, the anticipation of the, the work that God would do in the future. But we stand in a different place in history where we can look backward upon the work of Jesus. We can look back at his perfect, completed work. We can look at his death, burial, and resurrection where Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross and rose victoriously from the grave so that we might receive this inheritance of redemption through faith in Jesus. So the same plea that the Lord makes to the house of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, I believe he's making to us today. Why would you die, O house of Israel, he says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. If I could summarize Ezekiel chapter 18 in a simple way, I would say it this way, that anyone who chooses to remain in the sin will die, will suffer the, the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. But anyone who chooses freedom and forgiveness in Jesus will receive a new heart and will live. Why would you choose death? Why would you not choose life? The Lord extends this plea to his people. Choose life, turn and live. And the same call goes out to us today. Would you choose life? Every one of us has a choice to make. Someday we will each stand in judgment before God. And in that moment, no one will be able to declare before an almighty God that I, that I am righteous because of the things that I have done. I am righteous because my good outweighed my bad. I'm righteous because I did all the good things. I kept all the rules. The only hope that any of us has when we stand before the Lord is that we would say, I am righteous because of what Jesus accomplished on my behalf, because I've trusted in him for the forgiveness of my sin. I have confessed him as my Lord and my Savior. I hope that you've made that choice. I hope you've made that important decision. I told you earlier from the baptistry that we would get to a point in our service today where we would extend an invitation and that if you wanted to surrender your life to Jesus, that today could be the day. And we've kind of arrived at that moment now where we've studied the word, we understand the clear call of scripture that we have a choice to make, each one of us. Will we continue on in our own efforts, in our own goodness, in our own, in, in, in our own striving and suffer that ultimate consequence, or will we choose the path of redemption 
through trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, confessing him as the Lord and Savior. Every one of us has a choice to make. And just as God appeals to his people, I, I believe his word appeals to us today. I want to I extend this invitation to you. Would you not choose to live by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus? In a moment, after I lead us in a corporate prayer, we're going to stand and sing a song together. And we call this the time of invitation. And the reason it's an invitation is because we're inviting you to respond. And today, if you're ready to respond in faith to Jesus by surrendering your life to him, then even as we sing, I would encourage you to come. Brad and I will be standing here at the front. We would love nothing more than to walk you through a prayer of faith that you would commit your life to Jesus, that you would turn from your sin and turn to Jesus as Savior. Choose life you may live. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord, as we come before you this morning, in this moment of ultimate decision, this key moment, my prayer is that we might know for certain, every one of us, that we have chosen your way of life through trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin by turning to him as Lord and Savior. Lord, none of us dares to stand before you and, and, and beat our own chest and point to our own record of righteousness because we understand that we've fallen short, every one of us. And it's only by receiving as a gift your sacrifice as payment for our sin that we can be forgiven and set free. Our desire today is to choose you, Jesus, that we may live. Stir in our hearts, move in our midst even as we sing this song of response. All this we pray in Jesus' name.